everyone and welcome to today's episode of Wild Research Bite podcast, which is brought to you by Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. I am Olli. And I am Emily. So what are we talking about today? Tell me, Emily. Yeah, today is the fire episode. So we're talking about wildfires, mostly in forests and with the focus of Sweden. So what happened this summer? Uh, and then I also interviewed a colleague of ours from our department, Wildlife, Fish and Environmental Studies here in Umeå. So we're going to listen to that. And then we're also going to discuss a little bit uh, about my project and also the future of fires. But before we get into that, I also want to mention a comment we got on Twitter from actually a colleague of ours. Did you see it, Oli? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. did. Uh, so, Tim, we asked after the first episode, when we talked about our nature interests, we asked for comments or uh, other people's stories. So, Tim says, it all started with me as a seven-year-old boy becoming interested in birds. Now I use modern technology, camera traps and GPS collars to study how animals use their landscape, including how they interact with other species and humans. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. And it's a very in interesting point to make that people oftentimes gain their nature interests already when they are young and then they develop the interest further and further as they go. But there are also many people who get their interest later on in life. Absolutely. It's never too late. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, thank you, Tim, for engaging in our Twitter account. And we hope that more of you will engage in our future questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter. Absolutely. So, but let's get back to the fires. Yeah, let's do that. So, what happened last summer? Last summer was extremely hot yes. for long periods of time in the whole Fenescandia. So, can you elaborate on that and what happened? And Yes, it was hottest ever recorded summer, actually, Gee, in, yeah. since we started measuring temperatures in the 1700s. So it's, it was extremely warm and extremely little rain, so very dry. It burned a lot more than uh, normal. So in Sweden, it burned around 25,000 hectares, yeah. which is, I mean, uh, a, a normal a normal year before that was um, maybe 1% of that. So it was a lot. Yeah. But this is, it's still interesting that it's a lot lower than it, it should should be, quotation marks, under normal circumstances, which is a point that I think many people don't know, that a normal pine or spruce forest or a forest here in Fenoscandia is formed by fire under natural conditions. And what are natural conditions? Do you mean when the human influence is excluded? Yes, oh, basically. I mean, now we... The hu humans actually light nine out of ten of the fires that start and so i mean we both ignite more and we also put them out i mean we use fire fighters to do that yeah that strikes me a lot of influence on the fire regimes by humans taking this a little bit further can you explain what are the different types of forest fires are they all the same are there different kinds of fires in terms of intensity and yeah, absolutely. F uh, fires is a very complex uh, disturbance. I mean, it it varies a lot in in temperature and intensity and how often it happens, and it uh, changes depending on what type of forest it is. So it's very variable, which also makes it valuable. But it uh, usually divide them into ground fires and crown fires. A fire you can think of it as it burns in the like blueberries. It doesn't move very fast. Or it can spread up into the, the crowns of the trees and will go very fast, especially if it's windy. It will like fly in the trees and quite dangerous. <laughs> yeah. What about what are the kind of conditions that are ideal for fire? Obviously, if it's very wet and rainy, it's more difficult for, mm, for yes. fires to take place. But what are the ideal kinds of circumstances? Yeah, so you kind of need something that burns, so some kind of fuel or, yeah, I don't know, like combustible material on the ground. And what usually burns is like really dry moss and like ground vegetation and not maybe not sticks or twigs and stuff, but more the moss layer. And then it has to be dry enough 
and there has to be some kind of ignition, like a spark. And yeah, as I mentioned, it's usually the spark comes from humans, cigarettes or forest uh, machines, people who are uncareful when they're uh, lighting fires in the forest. And then the uh, this last tense is is uh, lightning strikes. So that's the, basically the only yeah. natural form of ignition. Even though we are <laughs> lighting a lot of fires and putting them out now, it's it's a very natural thing and important for many many species in the forest. Yeah, like what kind of species and how does uh, fire benefit these species? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different species and also how much they are dependent on fire. Some really need fire, otherwise they can't survive at all and some are favored by it. But like birds, insects, lichens, for example. And I mean, a fire, it creates this open area. It kills trees, so it creates openness and sun comes into into the forest and you have trees that are dying or dead and also the like the ground layer is disturbed so there will be new seeds and and stuff happening so it really is a disturbance that has a lot of different parts to it it also of course creates shard wood like blackened wood which some insects for example need yeah yeah it's complex <laughs> i can say that you're going to go into more detail about this with the interview with Anne. Maybe it's interesting to point out that fires are a very par- natural part of ecosystems, forest ecosystems in Sweden and in the Nordic, but that they have been suppressed because of the damage it does to the forest sector. Yeah, we call that fire suppression. And yeah, it's basically we're putting out the fire so it doesn't burn up the timber we want to to harvest the forest so it used to burn yeah. a lot more even though it would be beneficial ecologically it will cause economic damage yes. on a societal scale yeah absolutely um yeah we have that i guess the cons then with the fires can be economical and of course dangerous to people if it's uh, close to villages or or cities and stuff but it has a very natural role in this ecosystem yeah. that it it has really shaped the forests here and is they said to be the most important natural disturbance in the boreal forest so it is very important yeah and we're going to go more into detail about the importance of the fire to the ecosystems and how it actually benefits invertebrate yes. communities yeah you're going to talk about it with Anne yes. probably you mentioned something about media and how it reported these fires in Sweden. What was the tone that they used to cover the yeah, subject? I don't know if you follow it, but <laughs> it was, from my perspective, very like a cat- catastrophic, you know, t- tone to everything that Sweden is burning up and <laughs> stuff like this. And of course, it is. It, it was a lot more dramatic than it used to be. There was these bans on lighting fires in the mountains, and in, even in your backyard, you couldn't even have a grill out when it was first. So I understand that it's shocking somehow for people, but it was very one-sided in, uh, from my opinion that uh, none of the benefits or the the historical aspect of it, like how it it's used to be or how a more natural system, how much, how many fires that would have. But I guess that's not really titles for news. So it's understandably as well. Yeah. So me- the media is taking mostly the economic impact of fires and also of course creating this dramatic uh, image what was your opinion of the forest <laughs> did you see it i was in south africa last summer so i wasn't following the news uh, in sweden but that's also very interesting to point out because thinking about fire from southern african perspective fires play a huge role in southern african savanna ecosystems as well and they are very very natural part of the uh, dynamics between grasses and trees and if you exclude fire like in many places it has been done throughout southern Africa then woody plants start encroaching on the grasslands and this can have huge impacts on not only invertebrate communities but also antelopes and through that through those trophic interactions also mm, predators. It's a very different system than here and I guess the how often it burns is very different too. Like the fire frequency is very high in savanna ecosystems, right? Yeah, 
definitely. And mainly like in the Fenoscandia area, you would have forests as a natural climax state, mostly at the moment. But in, here in South Africa, it's a savanna system, mm. uh, which are very different from forests, of course. Cool. Can you maybe explain a little bit about the work at SLU? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, SLU does a lot of uh, applied science, which I do as well, and, and Anna has done too. So, uh, and with applied, I mean how you can use the science somehow. And for example, you can use fire as a tool. I mean, you can like actively put forests on fire <laughs> for a purpose. And um, that's one part of my research and also one part of Anna's. It's been done a lot before, that's called slash and burn, that you used it to fertilize your forest or your like agricultural land. It's not done as much anymore, but forest company uh, do prescribed burns, and that's on clear cuts and also in forests. So they do that within uh, the a forest certification called FSC, um, but also the county boards and municipalities do it for conservation purposes. That's more of what I will talk about with Anne, like the prescribed burns. How are they different from wildfires? And yeah, what are the pros and cons with doing these types of things? Yeah, amazing. I think the next logical step here would be to listen to your interview with Anne and then we can reflect on what you discussed yes. afterwards. Hello and welcome Anne Marit Hekala, who's also a researcher here at Wildlife, Fish and Environmental Studies, SSLU. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so I invited you here to talk a little bit about prescribed burning. Yes. But I thought first, what are you working on right now? Yeah, right now I'm working with uh, several different aspects of uh, biodiversity and, and forests. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the projects I'm working in is uh, the woodland key habitats. Okay, so what is so a woodland key habitat? It's the, the small uh, patches of more valuable forest or nature uh, that is scattered in the landscape and it, it needs to be protected somehow. So what or is this extra value? Yeah, there, there, might be, um, there might be special species in there. Mm. Uh, there is usually lots of dead wood, which is important. And... Um, there might be some uh, special kinds of landscapes there, like uh, cliffs or nice um, uh, streams. Or mm, yeah. So they are like a little bit nicer patches of nature within the managed, managed landscape. Okay. So what are you doing with them? Uh, actually, we are evaluating if, uh, if these if this, uh, woodland key habitats are better in biodiversity than the normal landscapes are. Okay. And if there are some trends like between northern and southern Sweden, eastern and western Sweden and uh, and uh, yeah, many different things. Hmm. We have a huge data sets we are analyzing or we yeah, we haven't had we haven't got the, the whole data set yet, but it's a huge amount of data and we there are thousands of questions to be answered oh, within the data set. Cool. Okay. Mm. And then the other project is uh, also, uh, it's related to eco-parks, which are Sveaskog's uh, um, landscapes, like um, larger, several thousands of hectares mm. landscapes, which are treated differently than the no normal uh, pr uh, production forests, mm, so there. there there can be some restoration or, or burning mm. also, mm. and um, and o but also normal production. So, okay. so some kind of in the between conserv um, like preserving and managing. Yeah, yeah, they they are somewhere in between, mm. and uh, there are some um, thirty seven of these eco parks in Sweden around Sweden. Mm. And uh, we now we are taking a little subsample of that and checking out if these eco parks are better than the production forests. Okay. So the the same same question, but in larger scale. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I guess we'll find out more 
later or in the future about that. Yes. But I mainly invited you to talk about your PhD project because that had to do with prescribed burning, right? Yes, uh, yeah, my PhD project was was about restoration and lots of burning. Mm. And uh, then I had been working within that field also, like since I graduated as the Master of Science, I worked in forest fires and restoration. And also here in SLU as a postdoc, I've been working with fire. Mm. So I have worked quite a lot with fire, prescribed fire. It's not as new as a subject as for me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But you did your PhD in Finland, right? Yes, yes. And the university is? It's Oulu Yleobori. All right. Yeah, I always have trouble pronouncing that name. (laughs) Oulu. Yeah. (laughs) But so what what did you find out during your PhD? Yeah, I was studying different different. animal groups or different organism groups so uh, and I had always the same study setting so it was uh, thinning different kinds of thinnings and then prescribed fire and control Mm. and thinning is when you yeah when you take yeah take some trees here and there Mm. but that was uh, not uh, commercial thinning that was the restoration thinning so Mm. we wanted to create uh, random structure mm. in the forest so that there are different sizes of trees in diameter in height mm. and also different tree species so we selected out some trees what we thought that the uh what 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 is uh left is like more natural structure okay and then the same was done with the fire so we first did this and then burned Mm. But this is for the like a scientific purpose, not. No, it was not for scientific purpose. It was actually for nature management. Okay. It was done in protection areas in thirteen different Na- Natura two thousand areas. Ah, I see. In Finland, so it was a, a management hmm. work, and we just implemented some research into it. Yeah. So cool. um, it it was it was very interesting to be with when they burned in 2006, mm. which is the same year as you have your burns. Yes, absolutely. It was the year of lots of forest fires yes. in Finland and Sweden and Russia. Mm. And then we restored also did prescribed burnings. Uh, I have to go out and see a prescribed burning uh, some summer so I can experience it for myself. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, what we found out was that um i looked at vegetation i looked at uh beetles which are like dead wood dependent beetles mm. so they need dead wood yeah they need dead wood for somehow. their living yes. somehow in larva or in um, adults as adults or at some part part of their life cycle they need dead wood yes and they are called saproxylix yes yes um and I looked uh, flat bucks also, mm-hmm. which are like small. Um, they are not beetles. They are they're flies. They are bucks. They are like heteroptera, which buck. is two wings. Um, yeah, yeah, they they yeah they they aren't exactly beetles. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> they're insects anyway. <laughs> insects they are heteroptera. Yeah, the, I don't know the Swedish word. No, word I'm not sure or English word. No. Let's but go bugs. with the Latin one. But <laughs> they, they are like flat and they mm. live under under bark very often. Or Barkshinbagge. Yes, that's it. it. The Swedish word, maybe. Yes, mm. that's it. So I looked at them also. And uh, then I looked at deadwood diversity mm-hmm. and volume and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And of course, when you look at different organism groups, you you find out different things. Yes. So I started with beetles and they were really fast in their reaction. So to the fire, to the fire. So yeah, to the fire, exactly to the fire. And they, they increased in number very clearly right after fire. And they still increased the second year after fire. Mm. But then in five years, the numbers went down. Okay. So we could find out that uh, it was very beneficial for, for the bi- uh, biodiversity of red-listed species, which are like threatened yeah, by... Like rare somehow. Yeah, mm. rare or threatened species. Yes. So it was very beneficial for them, 
uh, also in long term. Okay. But uh, because the numbers went down so quickly, mm. it means that you should actually burn quite often yes. in the landscape level. Mm. So as uh, when you, you or someone is planning these restoration burnings or prescribed burnings, they should take account this aspect that they it's a long it's not long living long uh, yeah, the effect of the fire yeah the yeah. effect is very short in hmm. for for beetles yes uh then when i looked at the vegetation i saw very nice patterns uh, different shrubs uh yeah they are reacting differently okay so for example blueberry we all know that it's it's like everywhere. Yeah, both in but Finland. Actually, <laughs> yeah, but actually, it's um, uh, it's been slightly declining in Sweden and Finland. Really, in the cover, yes. Mm-hmm. And one one reason could be the soil scarification. Yes, which so is breaking. That's like the breaking the soil when when af- after clear cutting they do this. Mm. So the forest companies, yeah, it's they kind of they turn the soil. Yeah, like turn the soil mm. and they make ditches or patches of uh, open soil. Yes, um, and that is breaking the rhizomes of blueberry. That's the rhizomes. The rhizomes are the the below crown parts of blueberry. They can be huge. There is a huge. So it's not. Uh, it's almost the same as roots. Can you yeah. call them roots? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's almost the same. Tiny but roots. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if one is a, a vegetation ecologist, <laughs> plant ecologist, or then you wouldn't agree. <laughs> wouldn't agree. But yeah, below ground parts. Mm. And they are, uh, blueberry is very slow in recovering when these rhizomes are broken. But if you just burn the above ground part mm. of blueberry, it recovers really quickly. So it comes almost, yeah, the next year you could see the blueberry cover all over mm. this. So the blueberries burned. can take fire disturbance very well. Yes, mm. yes, they are adapted to it. Because sometimes you compare uh, the the clear cutting and the fire that it creates uh, open sun exposed areas. Yeah, but there are differences like this, for example. Yes, exactly. So yeah, there are differences that you can't mimic fire by doing clear cut. No. Uh, and so, uh, at the same time, we saw that some, like, crowberry, the um, the Swedish name would be... Kråkebär. Ah, Kråkebär. Yes. That is... Um, Empetrum, right. Empetrum nigrum. Mm. Uh, they are... They don't... They don't overlive. They don't live after fire. They die. Okay. And that's in their system they are very flammable okay so it they burn easily and they need to have the fire to start over in their in their succession like they they will start from the beginning of the fire yeah but it takes long time because so they I can take over sometimes right uh, yeah they can take over yeah. yeah they can take over mm. if they if there is no disturbance they can take over and grow. Grow. It can be like only empetrum yes. mats uh, in in the forest. Mm. Simplified. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I I saw no recovery in ten years oh. of empetrum, while uh, blueberry and lingonberry they were re- really fast to recover. Oh. So we both you both found effects on vegetation. And and insects. Um. Yes. Yeah, and then I looked. Um, the flat bugs were very similar to uh, to beetles. Hmm. So I found a very rare species after fire. They came precisely after fire. Like I think the next trapping season, because I, I had the traps on the trees right after fire. So okay. I just took them out this while when we burned and then I took the traps back so I could see that they came immediately after fire so they were attracted by the smoke Hmm. and the heat but they have there's both red listed and a lot of fire dependent species in that group 
Yes, Fine. there are. Correct. Yes. And um, it, the same stuff was done in here in Sweden, in SLU. But the trapping was done the next year, not the same year yeah. of fire. And there they found no red-listed species. Okay. Not the same species what we have. Hmm. But we don't know if that's because they are not there. Yeah. Or because the trapping was too late. Yes. So it's hard to tell. Yeah, it's hard to tell. So but it's always but hard with these uh, measuring the right things at the right time. <laughs> yes. Uh, these fire-dependent species, they react really quickly. Yes. So they often often come when the sp- trees are still like almost burning. Yeah, because they are very specialized to like the smoke or the heat or yes. something. Yes, they can they can um, smell yes. the fire <laughs> from the long, long distances. <laughs> yes. yes. No, so that's very cool. So we have a lot of benefits, we could say, from yes. fire. Yeah, lots of benefits. The harms, there of course are harms. Yes. So when looking at um, more stab- st- stable species or non-mobile species which yeah. can't run away mm. they will be killed yes so we have Surely. these two different strategies some um, species prefer stable environments uh, and are less mobile they move less and then you have the other side which is more mobile and um, uh, can take disturbances for example yes yes exactly and you can't benefit all of them with the same method no no you can't so um uh when doing restoration this fire can be i i said in my phd my conclusions that it it's good to use when there is not so much known biodiversity in the area like if the forest site is quite a poor yeah. in quality as we <laughs> as we say yeah. uh then it could be good to burn yes. because you don't lose much Mm. You have a lot to gain. And yeah, you have lose. very much to gain, but not not much to lose. Instead, if you burn these very fine forests, yes, uh, you also lose. So there's there's this, this um, little debate mm. that should you leave the good ones to be and develop mm. into something else, or use some other restoration method which is like thinning or gap cutting Mm. which are more uh, they are better for more sensitive sites yes yeah because now there is the county boards are doing prescribed burnings in uh, like protected areas with high values yeah Um, and the forest companies are are doing prescribed burnings on more on clear cuts or on more production forests yeah yeah but it's not enough to do only on clear cuts if there are no trees on the clear cuts. Yeah, so why why is that? Uh you the the gain what you get is very short termed. And they they short termed. So you don't there is there is no trees to uh, die in the f- in the future. Yes. So there is no continuity in dead wood. Mm. which is important. Do you need uh, that it creates dead wood over time? Yes. Is that what you mean with continuity? Yes. Mm. So so that there is, like, um, beetles live in in a certain type of dead wood. And that type of dead wood exists only a short time. Yes. So it decades over the, beyond the habitat's... Uh, that the beetle can live in. Yes. So so there needs to be new dead wood, hmm. which is the same that the beetle needs. Yes. needs. So that's so when you talk about the, uh, dead wood diversity, that means that is created by this, that if you have continuity of new logs being added to the, the pool yes. <laughs> of dead wood. Yes, and that was the, the third or fourth aspect in my PhD, look at the dead wood and its continuity and, and diversity. Mm. And I, I looked at uh, dead wood and also living trees, 
which were left on the stand. And I modeled how they will develop in the future. Mm. And uh, I found out that, uh, yeah, when when there is a very, very high intensity fire, almost all the trees are dead a couple of years after fire. Yes. Like max five years after the fire, all the dead, dead all the trees are dead. And then there is no continuity no. anymore. But that's all. That's only on stand level. If there is in the landscape, yes. like within a couple of kilometers, if there is these kind of trees that can die, then then the continuity mm. is safeguarded. Yes. So then you have a um, not a diversity or a variation in the specific fire, but at, uh, at different fires, so they create different yes. things. Yeah. So yeah, it should be a mosaic of. Uh, different kinds of forests, different kinds of, like, different times after fire. and. Mm. But uh, I also found that um, this thinning method was better in safeguarding this continuity. Yeah, okay. And, uh, but it takes much longer time to reach the same volumes of dead wood by thinning mm. than by burning, because burning is so immediate. Yes. It kills and thinning is not killing so much. No, no, that's true. Yeah, and in if you do not do nothing, because these stands were protection areas, so one option is like passive restoration, as mm. they call it, which is a little odd name because it's it means do nothing. Yeah, uh, leave the natural yeah, things to it, happen. Yeah, it will <laughs> take like. 50 years for these stands to reach the same level of deadwood volume oh. as the restoration sites. Mm. So, yeah, it's 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 like faster. Yes. And you 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 gain the benefits faster if you do some restoration. I just thought that we've talked about that we need deadwood uh because we have species dependent on it, but um the reason we need it is because we have too little of it now. Right? Yes. Yes compared to what it's uh, natural or um, yeah. what it was before we started commercial forestry anyway. Yeah, yeah. So there is this classical paper by Juha Siitonen, 2001, mm. who said that the amount of deadwood has declined 90 to 98% of its natural value in it's Finland. And I think that applies to Sweden as well. Yes. So that's a lot. Hmm. And that has created uh, extinction depth, about 1,000 species. So that... That means that in w- if we do nothing, these 1,000 species will die hmm. into... They will go extinct. So they're not extinct now, but their habitat is uh, basically gone or too little yeah. for them so to... Yeah, they, so they are, they are reacting in, uh, like, they are slower in mm. reaction like so they will <laughs> yeah it's a lag mm. extinction depth yeah so that's because we we take away the timber when we harvest yes and we ta- yeah and in the thinnings we also take out the bad timber yeah, like bad <laughs> bad in in <laughs> quotation marks yes um and yeah unvaluable trees we take them out yes uh but they could be left to benefit biodiversity. Yes. Yeah, it's a big challenge, I guess, trying to combine the the production side and the conservation or natural side of Yes. This. And uh, yeah, because the reason for taking out the wood, dead wood from forests is especially in southern fin- Finland and Sweden, it is of course the bark beetles. Yes. No one wants the spruce bark beetle to attack their forests. No. And they, it can be devastating the, how much they kill the Absolutely. trees. So um, it's uh, you have to be also in restoration. You have to be a little careful. Yes. But I, what I was now doing in in SLU about bark beetles and restoration fire, we found out that uh, fire creates lots of dead wood for bark beetles. And the primary bark beetles, which which are the ones that are able to kill the trees, oh, yeah. 
their amount increases very highly mm. during the first year. The second year, they start declining. Okay. And now I looked five years after, and I found out that these burn sites had less, much less uh, bark beetles, especially spruce bark beetles, okay. than the gap cut sites or even the control sites. Oh, really? Yeah. So you get this initial peak, but then... Yeah, it's very short-termed. Mm. Instead, these gap cut sites, they can be a little bit risky even. Okay, because then you uh, gap cutting is when you take a uh, part. You don't make a big clear cut. You pu- uh, cut. Yeah, uh, you make yeah, small, or <laughs> yeah, small patch. gaps, yes. patches, like 20 to 40 meters mm. in diameter. Right. But in this restoration experiment, we left half of the trees on the stand. Hmm. So we didn't take out the trees from so the basically forest. Basically left food for the bark beetles. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so the reaction of bark beetles was slower. They didn't react so quickly, but um, they increased in number during the second year. And when I looked at the five-year responses, uh, they had much more. Okay. So there is a tiny risk that in certain types of spruce forests, there can be bark beetle problems, which is, of course, not the problem when it's a protected area, which is set aside, and the species cannot spread to neighbor sites. Mm. Exactly. But uh, But it's interesting that there was a big difference between the gap cutting and the, the fire. Yes, I found it interesting, too. And I found it also that uh, there was much more enemies, natural enemies of bark mm. beetles on the burn sites. Okay. So like other beetles, predator beetles or yeah. predator insects, I guess. Yeah, beetles, predator mm. beetles. Okay. They they were much more abundant mm. on the burn sites. So it could be that these uh, predators, they th- there is a time lag effect okay. so the beetles have the bark beetles have died or gone away but the predators predators stay yeah. there okay yeah it's very i haven't thought about the, the that before i started this phd that the the beetles have like a, a whole tiny uh, ecosystem for themselves you know with yes. herbivores and and predators and everything yeah, it's very and th- parasites. Yeah, it's a very like um, it's so tiny, so we never see it. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's cool that it's there. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> this I think fires are m- somehow misunderstood in yes. in Sweden and in Finland. Public uh, people, normal people, think that it's harmful. Yes, and it should be thought that it's a natural phenomenon. Mm. Yeah, we get a very one-sided uh, uh, view of it from the media. Yes, actually. exactly. And people think that it's uh, awful when it burns. Yes. But that's but what they say, you know, catastrophe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, it's catastrophe for forest owners who lost lost their forests. Yes. Which, it's of course, awful. it is. Uh, economically, it's uh, It's awful. I, I was very worried. Uh, I own some forest in, yes. in my my place and there was fire quite close nearby, oh, really? and I I was horrified yes. if it comes. I had no no insurance yes. in my forest. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, but it's it, didn't, it didn't come, so no one wants their own forest to burn. No, but uh, for the biodiversity, the the fires are needed. Yes, so it's a little dilemma. Yes, very two sided. Yes. Okay. Cool. But thank you very much, Anne Marit, for coming here and talking about prescribed burns. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Thank you for the interview. It was very interesting, especially the fact uh, what you were talking about, how important all these fires are, ecologically speaking, for multiple different plant species, as well as as the invertebrate community. Mm. And... On the other hand, we have economic damage that fires can cause. So how do we accommodate this positive ecological impacts and the economic losses that we get from fires? It's a very interesting question to think about. Yes, Yes, and very 
complex with no real answer, <laughs> I guess, because you can't yeah. you can't uh, do it both at the same time. You have to think of a larger scale, I guess, that you know on a, on a national scale or something. Exactly, and also it's a very good example actually about how ecological and social systems are interlinked and how a solution to an ecological problem has to be also thought from the social sciences perspective. Yes, Yes, that's a very good point. Anne was quoting one paper and according to which approximately 90 to 98% of all the dead wood in Sweden and Finland has been lost. This on the other hand can cause the extinction depth of 1000 species and that's just an insane high number yeah it's it's completely crazy yeah like 98 percent. that's like that's that's almost 100 i mean that's like everything <laughs> it's just yeah and yeah. it just makes me reflect on the fact how big uh, ecologically functional loss we have yes because i mean dead wood is so, so important like Anna said too i mean it's it is the home and food and like a habitat for so many species, not just insects. It's like birds and mosses and lichens and so many species are dependent on it somehow. Yeah, definitely. Would you like to also mention you told me, as we talked earlier uh, over coffee, about some other studies that you came across with about fires. Yes, I mean, there's so much fire research going on at SLU. So I also wanted to mention a colleague of ours, her name is Frauke, and she works with voles, so like small rodents. And there's a um, disease, a virus, it's called a pumula virus, and it spreads a disease in Sweden, it's called sorkfeber. I couldn't really find a good translation, but something like vol fever. And um, she studied how this, uh, this spreading of this disease uh, is affected by fire. So they did a, a study in Norrbotten, which they found that areas who had burned actually had a higher risk of this, the, the virus spreading. So I thought that was very interesting, actually. Yeah, definitely interesting. If you have higher number of species, it keeps the these diseases like lower, the risk of them being lower, because if you have a bunch of, of mice running around <laughs> and you have more different species, it's less likely that the same species will find each other in the forest. So they, the diseases spread less. I thought that was very cool. Exactly. This is a very good example of biodiversity actually uh, Im- improving heter- heterogeneity Absolutely. in a landscape and also therefore preventing disease from spreading. Yeah, no. Because you always you hear a lot of... I mean, in the news also that, oh, biodiversity is so important, but it's it's nice to see uh, real examples of it also. The The conclusion of the study was also then that this the summer 2018, the fires, that that will probably also then give increased numbers of these this disease, at least in the northern part of the country. So that's, right. of course, a downside that we don't think about often. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's uh, good to think about from all the different perspectives. Yeah. What about your own research? Because you mentioned earlier that you are doing your PhD also on restoration and fire. Yes. So can you go into more detail about that? Absolutely. One uh, one part of my PhD project is to compare wildfires with prescribed burns that Anna talked about. So, I mean, a wildfire, which then is a natural fire started by lightning and then a prescribed burn being man-made fire. So I've done some sampling this summer for both beetles and some other things around that, how much dead wood it is, for example. And I wanted to see the differences between these two because that will affect the results. I mean, if we try to mimic, like make a fire that's supposed to do the same thing as a natural fire, they have to have the same results, I guess. Otherwise it doesn't work. So what kind of differences are there in terms of the ecological impact between artificially ignited fires and natural fires. What are the differences in the dynamics? Um, I've just started analyzing my results, but I mean, I read the literature and it is fairly known that 
Usually a wildfire is, is more intense, uh, higher temperatures, that it's larger, and it creates, it's more varied. And the reason for this is many, but I mean, a, a fire is hard to control. So when you do it by hand, <laughs> you have to do it carefully and it takes a lot of planning. So it makes sense that you do it on a smaller scale and you usually do it when it's not super dry and not, uh, you know, extreme winds or something because you don't want it to burn the entire place. <laughs> you want it under control. <laughs> yeah, it has to be under so control. That, that makes it usually lower intense intensity and smaller. And then you, you kill less trees, you create that less dead wood and... There's absolutely ecological differences that comes with that as well, yeah. which I'm trying to figure out what they could be. Cool. What about like, so So as I understood, this is your first chapter of your PhD. How are you going to follow up? What is um, What are the next chapters about and how are they going to relate to your first chapter? Yeah, this... Uh, comparing these fires are also done on a long longer perspective so we want we're looking at fires that are 12 years old because it's fairly known what happens with the beetle community right after the fire um, but not really how how long does these effects stay because if we put all this money into doing prescribed burns for example we want our money to be well worth we want the the biological or ecological benefits to stay of course as long as possible. So that's why we're doing it 12 years after the fire. But I I'm also interested in in how this connects to browsing of moose. So I also measured how much the moose eat uh, and how much damage and how much of food is available for moose in these fire areas. So that's what I'm going to start working with next. And I'm really excited about that. Yeah, and your study area is also going to be in northern Sweden. Yes, yeah, there are three large fires in Norrbotten that I've sampled and that I will sample more this summer, probably too, but we're still planning, still planning phase. All right, yeah. that's cool. That's Yeah, thank you for all that information. My next question is probably very relevant for uh, master students and people who are looking to do a PhD in their future. Yeah, shoot. Have you have any have you had any challenges in your PhD so far? And if you have, what are they and how would you describe the process of getting to this point? Of course in the beginning in a PhD it takes a lot of time to just get into the flow and kind of like conceptualize what you want to do. But yeah, how would you describe that process? can't think of any any like event or something special but i mean yeah as you said getting into the subject if this course uh feels very big and a bit intimidating in the beginning because it's it's new and it's big and but also very exciting of course yeah and um, but there's so many different parts to a, a phd it's it's both that it's a new subject but it's also logistical planning of field work and you know how much time does things take it's really hard to estimate and plan your time um it's a big challenge but a one that i really like so yeah you become kind of like a you have to learn how to juggle a lot <laughs> a lot of different things and it feels like uh i'm getting a lot better at it yeah that's a yeah that's a really good answer and also the point that you said that you get better at it while you do. And that's a very important part of PhD. So you're... Yeah, because it is an education. I mean, we're, we're here to learn, not not to be scientists. We're here to learn to be science, scientists. Exactly. And it's an adaptive process. We are doing and we're facing challenges and we're learning from those challenges and using that knowledge to go further in our projects. Absolutely. But now I have to ask you the same question, of course. Biggest challenge so far? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Biggest challenge so far has been probably the initial conceptualization of the big picture. I spent uh, the three first months just reading about my study subject and trying to formulate those questions that I want to answer yeah. uh, in my PhD. And in the beginning, it was a little bit diffi difficult to tie all of those aspects together, but slowly you kind of you're talking with your supervisors and you're talking with your colleagues and getting valuable feedback and 
that has been a very important part of developing these concepts and ideas in my PhD at least. All those multiple coffee breaks that we yeah. take, they are actually they are very helpful. Actually very useful <laughs> very helpful. in terms of getting <laughs> absolutely getting reflection on, from other people. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we are approaching the end of this episode, and I think what I really want to bring in in into the end of this talk about forest fires is President Trump's comment on if raking the forests help for <laughs> in uh, combating for forest fires very so, yeah, relevant question please tell me <laughs> what does the fire Absolutely. phd say about raking forests yeah i would say it's it's uh, first of all impossible to do it even if you wanted to i mean maybe he doesn't know how, how i mean there's a lot of forests <laughs> you can't you can't rake them all yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a very efficient man, so maybe he could do it by himself, you know, throughout. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay, so if he, <laughs> he could do it, I would also say it doesn't really help. <laughs> because it's, I mean, if I assume raking means taking away leaves and twigs and stuff, not cleaning the entire forest. Yeah. We still have the mosses and stuff that, that burns. That usually is the thing that burns. So, I mean, dead trees lying down or standing up, they don't affect the the risk of fire or anything so even if a forest forest looks a messy or not clean it still doesn't affect the fire frequency or anything so i would say it's impossible and it doesn't help so he can he can rake rake exactly. away <laughs> <laughs> so maybe like a practical message to mr trump yes that please don't use your valuable resources in raking the forest in california no. it doesn't help no, just just don't. Just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you everybody so much for listening to our episode. Yeah. And if you have any questions or comments, please you can reach us in Twitter and Facebook and via our email. Yes, and I will also leave links to a lot of resources in somewhere around the episode for the the facts we talked about here. Uh there some of them are only in Swedish, but I will leave everything in, in some kind of description. Thank you, Oli, for joining all the way from South Africa to talk with me about this subject. Yeah, no worries at all. And that's actually, yeah, an interesting point. We are now exploring this new method of doing this podcast because I, I will be spending a lot of time in South Africa doing my field work. And now we are just recording this via internet connection. And I'm in the Kruger National Park in South Africa doing a field course on global perspective on adaptive wildlife management and yeah we're going to have an episode about this course coming coming up very soon so look out for that yeah i'm very excited to hear everything about that thanks everybody for listening and let's talk later